0: Sure, that's yeah. Oh my It's good stuff.
1: <laughs> All right. So what we were talking about is the value of breathing and that you're seeing that benefit. Yes, I am. That's the important thing, is, is that once we begin to see the benefit, we see the success. Then we become more interested in it or uh, enthusiastic about it or begin to have a a better attitude, which helps the effort. It's really interesting is is that it takes more actual effort to do something when you don't want to do it than it does when you do want to do it. Our feelings really do uh, matter in there, and when many people start off in their meditation, they're kind of resistant to taking the right effort. This is especially true for... Uh, students who have had meditation from other teachers who don't uh, emphasize the breathing. But once we begin to start uh, incorporating deep breathing into the Anapanasati practice because in fact that's what Anapana means, it means that uh, longer deeper breathing and that uh, it's beneficial in many ways to be able to uh, control the breath, and make it longer, and that they have been, uh, this has been known uh, for, for many centuries from from the Buddhist perspective, breathing is important for yoga, that in fact anapana, in Anattanasate, and Pranayana are exactly the same words, just different language, and that they're backwards. One is anapana, and the other one is prana, which is the out-breath. And then, so pranayana is out-in, and anapana is in-out. But other than that, they're exactly the same thing, and that is uh, controlling the breath, making it longer. And so, sports have known about that for a very, very long time. One of the examples were in sports is uh in heavy weight lifting um, that they actually have a, a process I'm not familiar exactly what the process is but it does have to do with a few deep breaths followed by holding the breath when the jerk is done and then as soon as the jerk get, uh, is up and you've got the uh, the heavy weights uh, above the head that's when the out breath is left So um, now the military is beginning to figure this out. And it took them a long time because sports have known it for a long time. In fact, inside the military with snipers, they have to be able to be really, really still. And so they need to learn to control the breath so that they can get a lot of oxygen in the body and then hold the breath and get everything really, really stable. And then they'll squeeze that shot off so that it'll be accurate. They have to make sure they're not moving the gun in any way at all, because in long, long distance shooting, the slightest movement of the gun um, at the point when the bullet goes out is going to make them miss the mark by 10 or 20 feet sometimes. But if it's just two feet off, they've missed the target so they have to get really really calm and in fact there's been some spectacular world records i think that uh it was uh, an australian who was able to make a shot two kilometers that's insane He's a, <laughs> calm dude uh so uh the navy seals <clears throat> they liked their program and they like the training and they liked the results of the training but they were unhappy because of the success rate for the training. And so what they wanted was to um, increase the ratio so that people would not uh, fail. They were only getting about 30% or so. Uh, and everybody would fall out. And it wasn't the fact that they were in battle. It was the fact that they were in training. And so one of the training things that they would have was have the soldiers stand in the swamp, cold. They were in the swamp in the night. I know that swamp. I was raised in that swamp, and I know Camp Lejeune, and I know uh, Fort Bragg. Camp Lejeune is, in fact, a, um, a training ground that's in the swamp. They put it... Camp Lejeune in the swamp so that they could train there, And so that uh, Camp Lejeune is generally where the Navy, even though it's a uh, marine base, but that's where the Navy does their training for the SEALs, which is uh, swamp. And this is the PD Swamp of South Carolina. You probably have heard of the Swamp Fox, Francis Marion in the uh, Revolutionary War. He's the one that won the South because he would go and attack the uh, He would attack the British and then go hide in the swamp, and they couldn't find him in the swamp. The locals knew the swamp, but the uh, British military didn't know it. So this swamp has been a favorite place for the military. It's very easy to get into, and this is how they train their soldiers uh, or the the sailors for this um, uh, special brigade, is by having them stand in the swamp with their guns above their head during the night. By uh, sunrise, it's really cold, and it's wet, and there's snakes, and they've got to watch what they're doing and learn to stand very still. And they didn't have a breathing technique. And that was why the failure rate was so low. But when they started adding breathing, they uh, gained uh, uh, the success rate over 50%. They were very happy with it and out of that they developed uh, the system that's called box breathing now box breathing is actually what we would call a 4-4-4 four, four, four breathing and we've already been experimenting with five-five-two, or even a longer breath of uh, eight-eight-four. now 8 8 four actually then uh, would take it up to a uh, count of 20 or about 20 seconds, which means now we've brought the breathing down to about three breaths a minute. So that would be for later practice. Go ahead.
0: Okay. So then the numbers there it's eight in breath, eight out breath, and four holds Between. with empty. So that's with yes. an empty lung or full lungs?
1: That's with the empty lung. That's the difference. Okay between the box breathing that they do for the military and the uh, breathing that we're doing in meditation. The box breathing has 4 a count of four on the in-breath, and then a count of four to hold the in-breath, and then a count of four to uh, uh, to exhale on the out-breath. But this is not necessarily a relaxing breath. This is a kind of a fortifying breath, getting getting the, the, uh, the soldiers ready for battle. Okay, but it does oxygenate the body. It does give them something to focus on and pay attention to. And it does help them gladden the mind, which means then ultimately it does help them with the right attitude. I can do this. I can stand here in the swamp hold my gun and stay here until I'm given the word I can do this I can do this I can do this that's the kind of breathing watch closely okay if you do that, you'll begin to notice you get a little bit lightheaded. Nice. Right. Well, the 552 five, that we're doing is basically at the same rate, except that we're focusing now not on holding the breath in, but rather releasing the breath and coming to a state of relaxation after the breath is let out. So in this regard, we would do uh, a count of five on the in-breath, a count of five on the out-breath, and at the end of the out-breath, we count two, and then on the in-breath, we count up to five, and this would read the way to start. Now we don't have to continue to count, but rather just get the body into the rhythm of a long, easy breathing. And so the breathing has started to do it. <laughs> so um, when, when we're practicing this way, it really does exhi- oxygenate the body. And it makes us remember to breathe this way because the bo- this is not the normal breathing that we do. The body doesn't normally breathe that way because we've never trained it. Now that we're training it, actually it will begin to naturally, uh, through the training, begin to slow down. So that your normal breath rate will be slower than the average. So if we're working with five breaths a minute on the 552 for a long period of time, then that means that our normal breathing is unlikely to go back to 20.
0: I see. Yeah. In my uh, in my seated practice, what I've
1: been uh, checking my uh, audio. So this breathing that we're doing has quite a lot of value that is unknown, unless the student really does start to do it. They begin to see what enormous value this is to to. Um, to basically wake up the whole body, get the body tingling alive, getting yeah. the mind working. This is really, um, it's a very healthy thing to do. Um, many people, in fact, um, or at least uh, it appears to me, and I've seen it in all, in some literature, that when, uh, let us say, that 10 to 20 years, there has been... An increasingly emphasis upon the value of exercise and yet if you look at it uh, uh, in one way almost especially in pe- people who want to, uh, to lose weight they say well go exercise and diet all right here's the point the human body is actually quite conservative with energy and that the place that we expend the most energy is out of the head which means that if you're really working on some project you're a physicist or you're working on a math thing or perhaps an author, uh, a, a writer who has gotten inspiration and can write and write and write this kind of thing over and I've seen coders do that, just get into their code and they just can't get out of it all right, and the mind is constantly working. They, those guys are spending more effort and more energy writing on a blackboard or typing at a computer than anyone in the gym. And you can see how that happens because of the the head itself. In cold, cold weather, putting on a hat is one of the most important things to be done. Or in the in the in the in the hot sun, uh, even though the 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 sun will beat down on the head, putting on a hat is even hotter. So, um, the head puts out a lot of energy. Well that plays right into the whole idea of Anapanasati. That means that uh, the blood is going to give the brain oxygen so that you can use all that fuel and, and do some exercise mental exercise but we can't if we don't have the oxygen to do it so that's why breathing has always come into play with with sports especially endurance sports like boxing for 15 rounds you've really got to get that the oxygen going for doing that kind of thing but if we're if we're going to do the uh, the effort of cleaning out the mind then we need also that oxygen. And so taking those deep breaths and getting that oxygen in the brain really helps us more so than exercise. But as you were saying, because you're mindful when you're exercising and intending to do the breathing, you can see the breathing, how beneficial it is when you're exercising. And now you're also seeing how beneficial the breathing is when we're doing a different kind of exercise, anapanasati in fact that may be a way that we should be looking at it that this is not meditation this is mental exercise (laughs) and so that whole idea of gladdening the mind so that the student can get into the position of i can do this i can continue to sit and breathe i can continue to relax get the get the body fully alert getting it awake getting it to relax getting the mind to relax into satisfaction. This is really um, the way that we um, should be practicing. Now, um, one of the ways to understand this is a sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, number 5.26. It's a really brilliant sutta we can tell that it's kind of old, but that it was after the time of the Buddha because it does not have the standard stuff that was, uh, that was done in the compilation for things like the Majjhima Nikaya, where it starts off with, thus I have heard, and then it places the Buddha at a certain location.
0: So it's not by Ananda? In the
1: season. You've got your mic mute, muted.
0: Can, can you hear me now?
1: Uh-oh, I don't hear you at all.
0: All right. Uh, let's give me one second. Let's see, audio and video settings, microphone. It says that it's picking up the, you can hear me?
1: Yes, now I can hear you.
0: OK, great. Um, so the, the ones that start, thus I've heard, those are written by Ananda, supposedly, right?
1: Mostly, but not all of them. Okay. Uh, he was predominant, but there were many, many stories that, in fact, a lot of the stuff that happened before Ananda, you see, because the first 20 years of Ananda's life, uh, the Buddha's teachings, rather, the teaching life, uh, the first 20 years, Ananda wasn't there. He was okay. in doing court, courtly duties, but then he joined his, his elder brother. He's actually a half-brother or a cousin. Oh, uh, Right, and Ananda's mother raised uh, Gautama. <clears throat> so, um, this sutta that we're talking about um, <clears throat> is in the five, so it's listing basically five ways of uh, and if you look at the details on each of these five, it's repeating a little group over and over again. And you can see that what this group is, is this. It, these are the factors that bring about the first jhana. So basically what this sutta is about is five ways to bring out the first jhana. Okay. All right. Now, here's how it starts. It starts... In a very interesting way, because automatically all of the students are going to say, ah, meditation, that's how to bring out first Uh jhana. But the first item on the list is talking about when a teacher and a student are in a conversation. And that it doesn't matter really so much about the skill of the teacher, but what happens is, is the teacher says something that is inspiring to the student. Like a big, aha, I got it. All right. Now, when we mean inspiring, we're actually talking about Vipassana or insight. But sometimes these insights are literally mind grabbing. Aha, I got it. Okay. That's actually, if you think about it, step nine of Anapanasati in the sense of, aha, I see you, Mara. But in this case, because it's a discussion of the Dhamma already, the mind is already, hopefully for both individuals, in a wholesome state. The mind is already free from hindrances. And so when this spark of inspiration comes, it kicks off uh, the sequence of events that leads to the body being satisfied the pity or the arousal, Aha, I can do this, I like what I'm doing, or I can understand this, and that eventually then brings the student into a state of sukkha. All right, And while the mind is still focused in listening to the Dhamma, it applies itself to the Dhamma, sustains itself in listening to the Dhamma, and the first jhana is um, there because all the constituent components are there. Now that's brilliant think about that what this sutta is saying is is that basically first jhana is a normal state that people can go into on a regular basis and many people do but they don't know it they do have all the jhana factors but they don't know it meanwhile people in in meditation are struggling to get into the first jhana because the mind is full of hindrances but in this situation that we're discussing the teacher and the student both have a mind free from a dukkha deep free from the hindrances and is concentrating and working on the wholesome but now let's turn that around because the second item in this sutta says that when the teacher and the student are um, discussing the Dhamma the teacher too can find inspiration in the teaching he too can um, uh, find delight and sukha and pleasure and so the, and, and, uh, what this sutta is pointing at is, is that the teacher actually can And therefore we won't make a rule about it, but it would be delightful to be with a teacher who is in the first jhana. Who is delighted and comfortable and happy and uh, uh, focused and and capable of of maintaining his um, uh, continuity. But then there is now a third way of getting into this state of jhana. In both cases, now, it came from a point of the Dhamma was reached for inspiration or insight. Aha, I got it. And with that, um, you could see that actually the students and the teachers can sometimes go in it together in dialogue, that the teacher kind of piggybacks on with the student. The student is having great joy because he's gotten it, and so does the teacher. And so it's a, it's a mutual jhana fest. <laughs> All right, where they're relaxed and comfortable and, and uh, thinking of wholesome. Now there's the third. The third uh, is when uh, the student is on his own, but he's now mulling over the sutras, reciting the sutras remembering this of the sutras and in those days just like in the madras uh, uh, commonly having students memorize a long passage was the way to get a group of students started and after they've memorized the long passage then they're taught what that passage means in depth but uh, the sutras are done uh, First, by by memorizing the sutta. But that doesn't work in modern society. In fact, they found that making students remember and memorize things by rote is not the best education. We want the student to be able to think their way out of a paper bag, not just (laughs) pile a bunch of crap into it. (laughs) So, um, while they are mulling over and reciting the Dhamma, Especially, you know, that's one of the problems is about the language because in Thailand they're chanting in Pali and most of the Thais they have some proficiency of Pali, but it's not a native language. That really the chanting should be done in one's own native language so that we can listen to what we're saying, get inside from it, take delight in it, and go into the first jhana just by doing... Uh, uh, the, the chanting itself. This is part of the reason for the morning and evening chants every day is to give the students a chance to get into that wonderful state even before they start sitting because when, when they're sitting they're not uh, uh, in hindrance. They've already gotten it out. But there is actually a fourth way and the fourth way is even though we're not actually memorizing uh, the suttas and reciting them to ourselves, still we know the Dhamma. And so we're thinking about the Dhamma uh, and mulling over the Dhamma um, that we can gain inspiration from that too. So imagine, in fact, that you're just driving down the road and you're watching the road, you're quite mindful, but the mind is now um having thoughts of the Dhamma and we gain insight and with that insight sitting there driving the car we can go into first jhana being very focused knowing how we're driving and enjoying the heck out of it because we got a, a friend we got the Dhamma as opposed to thinking about school or busing or any of that politics there's all kinds of things that people think about when they're driving and it doesn't appear to approve their driving but when we're really focused, okay, so now we've got the idea that four the first four of these uh, uh, items of how to find the first jhana is actually an, almost an intellectual exercise that brings about inspiration or it brings about insight that we look deeply into something, and therefore all of these jhana factors can arise. And this is what the Buddha says: this first jhana is in fact the path to enlightenment. That we should uh, develop uh, this the skill of first jhana, so that we can go into it easily, we can sustain it easily, and that we can come out of it easily, and, uh, and this is a skill. So the first skill to be developed is the skill of getting into it over and over and over and over again, knowing that it's not going to last long. We also then develop the skill of maintaining it, so that we can get into this state of joy, without taking too much uh, 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 effort, that it becomes more and more effortless, And so we can get into it more easily. That's a skill. Then we develop the skill of maintaining it by maintaining wholesome thoughts, making sure that we are thinking things that are worthwhile thinking. And so... um, When when we are practicing meditation because now we're running across the fifth way the fifth way is meditation alright if the fifth way is meditation that's also the bottom of the line or the bottom list that's very interesting the thing that most people go for first Uh, Or let us say I'm going to do meditation to gain first jhana Actually, that's the bottom of the list There are easier ways to get into the first jhana Isn't that amazing isn't that interesting a lot of people think that the only way to get into the first jhana is by um, Working really hard to get the hindrances out develop the joy or maybe just sitting there in hindrance is long enough, there are many different ways of meditation to where in the sutta it's talking about the fact that no, we can do it through inspiration. That in fact, even in the sitting practice of meditation, that we still need that point of inspiration. That point of, aha I see you Hendrix. aha I know what's going on. That is in fact Dhamma itself. So we take the mind out of whatever it was in and put the mind into Dhamma in our sitting practice and then we can begin to do it really naturally. So that's the thing to start putting our mind upon in um, uh, our sitting practice. is to just be here now and have thoughts of the here now, but thoughts of the here now in relationship to um, the teachings of the Buddha. Now this is actually uh, in the suttas also, in the Nikaya as well as in the uh that if I read something in the Nikaya that didn't fit precisely with the Majjama Nikaya, I wouldn't give it so much weight. But in fact, uh, in the Majjama Nikaya, this uh, point that we're making about the Dhamma is overly emphasized in the Saba Asava Sutta, number two, that in verse 11, and the verses, by the way, uh, thanks to Kubota, he versified things so that we could see th- see where things were. Uh, Not diversified things, but versified. He put the verse numbers in. And so in verse number 11, it says, uh, uh, wisely attending to, this is suffering. Wisely attending to, this is the cause of suffering. Wisely attending to, this is the finish of suffering. And wisely attending to, this is the path that leads the mind into a state where it's not suffering. In other words, by mo- literally wisely attending to the Four Noble Truths in relationship to the here-now, what's happening with us right now, this sutta says this is the practice of, that will lead to the eradication of the first three fetters. What are the first three fetters? Number one is personality view. What is that view that most people have that needs to be destroyed? Is I am my personality. That's the personality view. View that I am the personality. In fact, the personality is not you. Why? Because sometimes you're there and sometimes you're not. So when we begin to understand the Four Noble Truths and recognize that the mind does not have to stay in personality, that the mind can in fact be in the Dhamma. So, with that, we can put the mind in the Dhamma, we can begin to see, I am not who I thought I was. Because I can control it. Now, one of the things that a lot of students have trouble with the self, and we'll talk in detail more about that. Uh, but, what happens is, is that there has been a, an issue that does not need to be there, that has been caused by a wrong translation the word that is tra- that is wrongly translated is the word anatta or atta which actually should be translated as a soul or an existence or a being of some kind and that anatta means there is no such thing as a permanent self or soul or an an abiding essence that's permanent, that was strong enough to survive death. The Buddha is saying there is not such a thing. But there is a personality, and that personality is not managed by, controlled by, or owned by a soul. That a personality is just a collection of things, and there's no soul or real essence in there anywhere like the body no there's no real in other words you don't own your body if you owned your body you could be 10 years old today and 100 tomorrow you could be healthy when you wanted to be and sick when you wanted to be but you can't do any of those things the body does not uh, belong to you in many ways uh body owns you not you own the body but we think of my body all right not my body or how about my feelings I'm angry No, they're not your feelings. They're just feelings. You are not those feelings. When we begin to understand the Dhamma in that regard, that you're not the feelings, then we can be liberated from them. And in fact, that's the whole point of Anapanasati, is, aha, I see you, Myra, which means, aha, I see that bad feeling, and I see it that it's not me. When we are angry, we say, I am angry. I'm owned by the anger. It's got me. Me and the anger are the same. But sati is to wake up and say, "Uh aha, I am not that. So we separate ourselves from that. That's a great insight. Uh Aha, I am not anger. Yes, there is anger, but I am not the anger. Or if something really tragic happens, like the laptop won't boot up. And now I'm in great pain. Why? Because I think that I am the laptop or I need the laptop or I'm not complete without the laptop. I need the laptop. No, I don't. I can sit right here with a dead laptop day after day happily. I don't need the laptop. I am not the laptop. That kind of realization is what brings us into first jhana through this method of mulling over the dhammas, excuse me, mulling over um, the hindrances to recognize that I'm not any of that stuff. The second fetter is the fetter of silabhata paramasa, or attachment to right rules and rituals which means that we begin to see what society has been doing for us and to us that has messed us up. That basically all of the hindrance is learned behavior. And so by throwing out the hindrances, in a way, we're throwing out society. In fact, this is the whole point about seclusion. Why do people go and sit down on the floor in a meditation hall? or a whole group of them for a retreat. The original intention is to get away from the world. And so the retreat managers will say, don't bring any books, don't bring your cell phone, don't bring a laptop, let's get out of the world for a while. But then the students, they get into the meditation retreat and what happens? They brought the world in there with them, secretly. They could hide it between their ears. (laughs) <laughs> so now the student begins to recognize all the, the world is in fact inside I brought it in with me I've learned too much from the world that's harmful and so we begin to throw that out we begin to take less of value in society because we can see that society is broken and here's how it's broken if we had nothing but chaos and that anybody could go do anything that they wanted to do, and the only thing that operated was revenge, then uh, there would be a lot of suffering. And so society, or we bring in a bunch of rules, so that we can create a society, so that we can reduce the violence, reduce the conflict, and so that we can manage uh, an existence and actually be able to build cities and things like that. Well, guess what? The society that we have built is full of potholes because not only does it not eliminate, it reduces suffering, but it does not eliminate it. And it does not eliminate it for anybody. Everybody still suffers. And then in fact, much of what the society gives us in order for these people to not suffer makes this great big group of people suffer all the more. So when people get really wealthy, they they think that they're satisfied but all of these people that they took money from are now uh, being harmed but then the guy who has got the money says wait a minute it's not enough I've got to go harm more people in order for me to eliminate my new harm that I'm creating for myself because of the, uh, let us say, the society's demand that more is better. Ah, so everybody suffers. When we recognize that everybody suffers through our society, we've got to say, wait a minute, there's got to be a better way of making rules than going along with the rules that society makes because society has not been successful at eliminating the very reason to have a society, is to make things safe because people in our society don't feel safe. Many of them got good reasons to not feel safe. All right. So that means then we've got a new way of looking at it, and the new way of looking at it, again, is the Four Noble Truths that we're working on. In other words, we begin to see the world through Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, rather than seeing the world through a set of w- rules or how things should be or the way that the society expects. They begin to see things only in the sense of this is suffering, let's get out of it or let's avoid it before it happens. Let's watch what we're doing, but we're not watching our what we're doing in order to abide by the laws or the rules of the land. We're doing it for the avoidance of suffering. Right.
0: This That's is something that I've yeah, that I've been noticing um just like when i'm watching my mind how much of it seems to just be conditioned reactions to things um and i feel like i've been getting better at kind of getting out of it and not it, it's kind of like it seems like a mix of both one and two or better one and two because it's like on one hand i see that like uh my like conditioned reaction to something is not me, and it's just something that's happening. But then at the same time, that re- that reaction comes through like my attachment to like kind of the, the, the rules that have been told to me. Uh, which mm-hmm. kind of like going back to our last conversation, what you were saying about how um, it, sometimes we're like put in servitude of the systems in the world. Like right, the the world wants us to. To keep the system going, and right. uh, the point of all of they this, they want is to,
1: you to keep their system going. Yes, exactly yeah. correct. <laughs>
0: uh, but then, like something I've been noticing more often now is like actually, like I can, I can do whatever I want. Like I don't have to be the servant to these things, to anything. And Isn't so, that a
1: matter of freedom? What insight? Wow, that'll put you right into first John in a minute.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been really nice, because then it's like, uh, it's like, okay, what am I doing? Do I want to be doing this? And if I don't, then I don't do it. And if I do, then it's like, great, I'm doing it, and I want to. <laughs> That's something that I've been noticing and working on very recently, yeah.
1: Excellent, excellent. That's exactly the, the way of, of going, is start paying attention to all these rules that we have been following. Knowing We don't have to follow those rules. There's a better, a higher rule to follow. And if we follow the rule of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, then we'll wind up, because the mind is pure, in being very, very well behaved according to the rules. And so... Uh, It's just a different approach rather than following the rules and often following the rules and not liking it into following only our own rule and really liking it. And getting the same results or better results, in fact, much better results. And and
0: something that's been that's been really nice with that is that it it doesn't necessarily change my actions, but it can change my attitude where it's, oh, I have to do this. It's like, no, I don't have to do this, but I'm choosing to do it. And then it's like a complete shift. It's like, uh, it, you know, it's no more of a, a chore. It's like, oh, this is cool. You know, like it's what I'm choosing to do with my time.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's the difference between the farmer and his son. The farmer does the farming because he wants to. The son does the farming because dad told him to do it. And that's the society. The son is in a society, the father's just doing, a, doing his farming and he loves it. But the son is in the society where he is told what to do. And he generally doesn't like it. So you've got the key. That's a great insight that do what you do, but do it. And in fact, this is actually in the, in the Bible do it with all your might in the sense of do it because you like doing it get into it rather than doing it begrudgingly that's a major major change because you see now we're operating out of uh, wisdom rather than out of a set of rules that we cling to so that's the second fetter the third fetter is the fetter of doubt and that there's layers of doubt but when we really get to the point that we can understand the Four Noble Truths we really understand what value it has so that's the final doubt but let's go through a couple of preliminary doubts first the first doubt that we have which comes from our childhood comes from our our victimhood where we expect our, our problems to be solved for us or at least we get help with it. Like mommy will help me with my homework. She'll help me with my homework now because she helped me with my diapers five years ago.
0: Right, yeah. Okay. I remember these from when we were going over the hindrances.
1: Exactly. So, our doubt then is the doubt of I'm not up to it, I need help. I'm not capable of doing it. Once we finish that layer of doubt, we actually, that's where the second noble truth, when we mull over the second noble truth, we do come to the place, oh no, I'm not going to be able to get any help here because the greed, ill will, and delusion is the internal greed inside this mind, the ill will inside this mind, and the delusion inside this mind, and no neuroscientist, or crane operator is going to be able to go inside that mind and make any changes to it. That the changes have to be made internally. So that's that first doubt. Uh, it's up to you. You've got to fix your own mind. Wow, that's so hard because, in fact, that destroys all of Christianity right then and there. In fact, it, it also helps destroy all magical thinking. Because almost all magical thinking is looking for magic to help me do what I want to do. All right? When you recognize there ain't no magic, there ain't no religion, there ain't nothing, no psychiatrist, nothing is going to help me. I want to have to do this on my own. For some people, that's almost terrifying. Because they then run into the second doubt. And that is the doubt of, can I do it? Am I up to it? Am I going to win or am I going to be a loser? Because remember, we've got the loser's attitude. So for that loser, it's an aspiration. Can I win? Not very healthy. And so the doubt remains. Where the eradication of the doubt comes is in again this inspiration or this insight into, in this case, I can do it. That comes from success. I got it. I understand it. I know it. I can change my mind. That is, in fact, the second doubt of can you clean out your own mind? Are you capable of doing it? The answer is right now I am. Right now I am. I can do it. I can do it now. And if I can do it now, I'll do it next time. That's then the eradication of the second doubt. Now comes along the third doubt, which is what we're really talking about. And that is the doubt of the the path. But when we recognize, uh, or the way, or the Buddha's teachings, in the sense that we come to the point of, hey, this thing that the Buddha has laid out with, with some of its knobs and bells and whistles is a working path. It actually works. And we take inspiration from that this path works, all right? building missiles, buying a gun, going to the store, getting married, nothing of those things have ever been satisfying to me. I've done that, I've been there, done that, no satisfaction. But the Dhamma, that's got real satisfaction in it. That's what makes the teachings of the Buddha so unique. And once we understand that, That, then, is the eradication of the third doubt. I've got what I need to do the job I know I can do. I've got the tools. Then, in fact, the tools in this case are the skills that we've been developing through the application of the the method of the Eightfold Noble Path. So, right sati and right attitude occurred when the teacher and the student were together. The clearing out of the hindrances were there. So they were doing many of the Eightfold Noble Path just by talking about the Eightfold Noble Path. They are actually practicing it while they were talking about it and gaining inspiration from it and going right into that that sweet state that is the um, intended uh, result when the Buddha says that, aha, this first jhana is the path to enlightenment is to get ourselves into a really, really nice state in maintaining that, where we're really satisfied. So that's the third doubt, is that we've got the the merchandise, we've got the tools, we've got now the skills that we need for freedom. So now we know how to live the life, and we'll talk about that later. Basically, this is also covered in both Sutta number 24 and in Sutta number 48. And I've just covered basically the first three steps of Sutta number uh, 48. So we'll talk about more. But basically, what we can say is definitely we're on the path of the Buddha. And what that means is is that we have entered into the stream, or we're on the path. This is what is meant by the stream entry. There's a lot of confusion, especially on uh, Reddit's group, Stream Entry, about what Stream Entry is. And so we'll talk more about Stream Entry next time, because in fact, we're already in it now. We're in the Dhamma. That's the stream. And so we begin to live our life under that set of um, new rules of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. And so there are certain things that we begin to do, but ultimately we're taking delight. When we fully take, when we're eager and we're taking delight in the Dhamma and we're mulling over the Dhamma and thinking about the Dhamma more and more and more, it consumes us in a way you could say that we become addicted to the Dhamma. Then why do people drink alcohol? They become addicted to alcohol because they like initially that good feeling. Or people smoke because when they uh, have a, let us say, nicotine withdrawal, if you...
0: Tamarata? Uh, Dhammarato, I, I don't hear you. Or, you froze. Right. Okay, I can hear you now.
1: Okay, all right. Um, yes, we were talking about addiction. That yes. we actually become addicted to the Dhamma. But uh-huh. this is a wholesome addiction. Or a wholesome attachment, Because when I use the word addiction, I know that some people are going to freak right out. Because all addictions, they say, are bad. No, what makes the addiction bad is the result of the addiction. All right? What makes alcoholism bad is cirrhosis of the liver, brain damage, early death, um, all kinds of physiological damage. The same thing with other drugs. Some of them are quite um, death deadly. And so... um, this goes also to the point about um, clinging. People uh, in the West, Western Buddhism has an idea, don't attach to anything. Right? That's not necessarily a way of looking at it because in fact, the, I know at least one sutta that the name of it is One Fortunate Attachment. Right? So um, basically, there are four modes of clinging. And though each one of those four modes of clinging will bring about a woeful state. So we're not talking about clinging to the Dhamma. We're talking more of being enthusiastic about it, seeking it out, mulling it over, noticing it, being a part of the Dhamma, recognizing over and over again, this is Dukkha. This is not Dukkha. This is Dukkha. This is not Dukkha. Okay, that's the way that we begin to uh, have our whole frame of reference around that Four Noble Truths. This is, it can be thought of an addiction, but it's a wholesome, healthy addiction because it really gives good results. In fact, the addictive part of it is what's necessary to change the old habit patterns of the mind. Because they're so deeply ingrained, we're going against what you could call... Uh, the instincts, our old nature. We're going against all that we've taught. We've been going against the uh, the society we live in. So we better have a very good vehicle to get out of all of that mess. (laughs) And not only the vehicle itself, but we've really got to get into that vehicle. We've really got to get into the Dhamma. Only then will the Dhamma pull us out of all of that suffering. And so we become kind of addicted to the Dhamma. This is basically what we mean by stream entry is one who is eager, eager for the Dhamma, uh, wants to hear it, wants to uh, recite it, wants to listen to it, wants to mull it over. This is, in fact, uh, the way that brings about the end of suffering is because of what you're looking for. We're not going to let it come up. So this is actually the practice, and I thought that today that we would talk about these four ways of going into 1st jhana to show how uh, important the teachings are that we gain insight from this and inspiration from that so that we can, in fact, come out of our suffering.
0: Okay.
1: And that sitting and, and meditating is a way of doing that, but it is not. The only way. And when we recognize these other ways, we can say, oh, yeah, I can, that means I can practice the Dhamma anytime. I can only practice meditation in certain ways or things, depending upon the way that we look at it. But the Dhamma is bigger than meditation. And so in that regard, that's what we're doing here. This is Dhamma. This is not meditation. This is not meditation, Rato. This is Dhamma, Rato. <laughs> and by the way, that word Rato, that means delight. means uh, uh, great joy. Now, there one of the things that I can, can close off with is, is that in these suttas, in the English language translations of them, the translators have gone into superlatives Okay, okay, using words like bliss and immersion and other things like this that make it look too exalted or too difficult to do Mm -hmm. that we're putting first jhana out of our range of existence when we advertise it with words like bliss immersion and (coughs) those kinds of words. This is simple. This is not hard to do. This is something that you have done many times in your life, but now we're doing it intentionally. It's gaining insight, gaining inspiration, knowing that we can get this, and we relax and become satisfied. And that's the definition of first John, and we can do that practicing that over and over again and you don't need to sit on the floor to do it but if you're not doing it right sitting on the floor by itself is not going to gain a whole lot of value so there's two ways to do it basically one is just to mull over think about gain inspiration from the Dhamma or number two practice it directly (coughs) Okay, do you have any questions about this? Um,
0: I have, uh, do I have questions about this? I don't know, maybe not yet.
1: <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right, well you mull over your question and ask it next time you call? Could, could we talk about uh, the, my practice a little bit? Talk about what?
0: My practice a little bit. Okay. Right, rather, I'd, I'd, if you have some time, I'd like to talk about some experiences I've had recently.
1: I'm having a little trouble understanding. Tell me again what you said.
0: Point the microphone more at me and speak more directly into it. Is this any better?
1: Yeah, that's better.
0: Okay. I, I uh, wanted to, if you have time, I'd, I'd like to talk about some experiences I've had.
1: Experiences? Yes. Okay. Not like... Yeah. All uh, right. Rather than talking about individual experiences, let's talk about experiences in general for a okay. moment, and and then later, if you want, we can talk about uh, uh, particular experiences. Generally, when a student of uh, meditation has an experience, they think it's a uh, a, a milestone, or a mark, or a um, a point of progress, or something that's worth remembering and perhaps worth repeating now generally when someone has a good experience or uh, something that they want to repeat in meditation now they have a new ingredient the the old set of ingredients got them into that state but the new ingredient that they're is going to prevent them from getting into that state what is that the desire to get into that state, now that they've had it the first time, they want it again.
0: I, I understand.
1: Okay. <laughs> and so, experiences are dangerous because we want them.
0: I don't, I don't know if experience was the right word to use for what I was trying to say. Okay. It was more like ways of looking at what was occurring in the present. All right. But I, I do understand what you're saying. All right. Okay. Because I, I, yes. I have had that experience myself where I've, it's like, right. oh, that was delightful. Let's do it again. And then I'm just so focused on it that now I can't have any peace at all.
1: Uh huh. Yeah. Another part of that also would be having, um, uh, like having a dream. And some people really get into dreams and interpretation of dreams and the meanings of dreams. But when, when some somebody would go to the Buddha with a dream, they said, never mind. That's just, you know, basically more mental wank, just doing it at night. The daydreaming or nightdreaming are not much, and so don't worry about the dreams. We can also say the same thing about experiences that would be considered past life experiences or otherworldly experiences, the experience of being in heaven and things like this. And then we want them again, or that we think that they've proven something, that we've gotten over some milestone. Where, in fact, these experiences really don't mean much of anything after they're finished. It's better just to leave them alone. But now I think that your question is a little bit different than that. So go ahead and ask your question now that I've thoroughly bashed the
0: experience. <laughs> 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 I do appreciate you time, to taking the time to explain that um yeah this is I guess more of just how I uh, approach like the the breathing and the sati and like everyday experience so um and I I want to especially talk about this weekend because I went on a very difficult hike and I while I was on it I was breathing very very deeply uh the whole time for hours and um like mentally it i it was like i would i would breathe in um like peace and it was kind of like telling my body that like things are okay even though it was exhausted but then i was also trying to gladden the mind but the thing is while normally what during seated meditation it can be more like gladdening the mind is more of like this like obvious thing since I was expending so much energy it was just kind of like in the background and it kind of settled into this sort of just like appreciation the present instead of like an overwhelming like meta or something like that which Mm -hmm. was quite nice because it seemed a lot more subtle and like easier to maintain um I
1: like that word just a, a subtle appreciation yeah yeah, that when I say it like that, I often put it too big, making the student think that it's too great, like, ah, this is nice. Yeah. But it's really just a sub-appreciation of how nice things are. Yeah, so that's good. That kind of realization, though, that's kind of more of an insight than it is an experience.
0: Well, it was an insight, I guess, that came about through, like, it was really, it it was like a hike, but it was really a meditative experience because it was like hours of just strenuous, like, breath. Uh Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we we climbed 8,000 feet, so.
1: (laughs) Wow. Where did you go?
0: Uh, Well, I'm in Washington, so we went on, uh, in 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 the North Cascades on a mountain loop. So we did 12 miles the first day and 18 miles the second day, so lots of time for reflection. forced deep breathing essentially <laughs> <laughs> a lot
1: of deep breathing excellent yeah. excellent all right um do you have any particular questions about it
0: uh i do uh i guess but most importantly i just kind of wanted just to, to just mention it but also i do have a question um i had there's another like there's an athlete I really admire called Wim Hof, who we spoke about before. And he was talking about deep breathing. And he 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 thinks that in doing so, we're kind of able to connect with our autonomous nervous system better, which is like the part of the body that just like regulates our like heart rate and all that stuff that we normally don't mm-hmm. have conscious control of. And it seemed like I it seemed like that, that was true to some extent, where it was like I was trying to like slow down my heart rate and like essentially tell my body that everything is okay, which was just like a parallel to like what I do in normal life where instead of like, it's, you know, climbing a mountain, it's just like stress from a, I don't know, a deadline or something like that. Do you, do you think that that idea has any merit that of like the connection to the?
1: Yes, I do. However, I would go also to say that it's generally kind of indirect rather than direct. Now, what I mean by that is, is that uh, the way the brain is wired, the anterior cortex normally controls the breathing, but we can put that directly in control of the frontal cortex. They've actually done MRIs and seen that happen. But generally, um, in fact, when I was a young student of of the Dhamma, I was curious about why the, the heart rate was never mentioned anywhere, that it was only about the breathing. Uh, Because I had been in India, you know, and they're piddling with all kinds of stuff there, making the heart rate go down and whatnot. And what I've come to understand is is that the heart rate um, really cannot be controlled directly from the frontal cortex. It has to be um, done by the autonomic system but that the frontal cortex does have uh, influence on the autonomic system itself.
0: That makes sense, yeah.
1: Okay, so that we can actually calm ourselves down. We can, through wisdom, we can look and see that there's no danger. And when there is no danger, then the chemistry will change and the heartbeat will slow down. I remember specifically several years ago, I was over at Watshou and Moke. And I had just been told by one of the one of my friends there uh, that the snakes are out. I don't know whether they have a season or whatever like that, but she said the snakes are out. And that somebody at the Watt has already gotten bitten by them and people are reporting, so watch where you're going. So now I'm back in the back area of um, the uh, Meditation Retreat Center, uh, where yeah, the grass is kind of cut, but there's also little limbs and twigs and all kinds of stuff. And think I think that it's kind of grazed rather than uh, mown. Uh, so uh, I'm I'm walking through here, and right in front of me, about four or five feet, there's this um, asp or kite, little snake about this long, known to be not deadly poisonous but a poisonous snake and as soon as i see that snake i have the thought they told me that these guys were out here but i knew that i was in no danger of that snake at all i saw that snake before it saw me i stopped and i waited and the snake slid it off but while i was stopping i had noticed that my heart rate without my being able to control it was was racing it had gone up. it go bump, 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 probably about 100, 110. And I noticed that. And I recognized it. And so I decided I was just going to stand there and see how long it takes for the heart rate to come back down to normal. And so we can work with it in that way. We can work with it because we can tell the anterior cortex. We see the anterior cortex, so that snake at the same time that the frontal cortex saw it and the anterior cortex immediately reacted. That's the thing about the anterior cortex. Our reptilian mind is fast. It does not do a lot of processing and putting things together and whatnot. It just says, danger. (laughs) And so in that regard, we can begin to control the heartbeat only because we're able to Uh, recognize that in fact there is no real danger here and so we can continue to watch and recognize I'm safe this is not dangerous even though I'm walking out in the woods where snakes are I'm smart enough to watch where I'm going and I'm going to go where I want to go and I'm not going to snap on any snakes they're out today so what I'm completely safe when we have that completely safe feeling, then the heart rate will go back down to normal as well as it'll stop pumping all of the adrenaline and other stuff that freaks us out, gets us ready for running and fighting and all of that kind of stuff. It's all really old, old programming right down into our DNA.
0: So sorry, the the neuroscientist in me has to ask you something. So. Um, you, you mean, the reptilian brain, you mean like the lower brain structures, like closer to the back, right? Yes. So, the, okay, so that's uh, the...
1: What they call the anterior cortex, and some will call the, the old name for it is reptilian brain, because that part of the brain looks very much like the brain of a, uh, uh, an alligator.
0: Well, that's the posterior cortex.
1: That's the anterior cortex, and cortex. Anterior, oh,
0: no. anterior is
1: the, up here. The... No, no. The, the, this is the frontal anterior means the back
0: no anterior means the front posterior means the back oh sorry about that
1: all right (laughs) backwards okay the posterior
0: yeah no no problem i just wanted to let you
1: know now now that you tell me that immediately i can see i was wrong (laughs) of course right got it backwards no that's why the
0: posterior is
1: yes exactly exactly right okay it is the posterior part of the brain it okay. is the old reptilian part. It is right. uh, part of the cere- the um, amygdala, uh, the uh, hippocampus, um, the um, basal uh,
0: ganglia,
1: the ganglia. Those, right. The, uh, the valibus, uh, even you could say the, that the, the and the cerebellum. Exactly. All of that is part of the brain, and anything that has that kind of brain, they can walk. They can talk or not talk, they can make sounds, uh, they can eat food, and have a lifestyle. So anything that an alligator can do that you can do, is controlled by your posterior brain. Right. And all we've done is just add, you know, uh, knobs and bells and whistles to onto that primary part of the brain. And it's fast, it makes reactions very quickly because that's their survival. In fact, you could say that in when prey is sneaking up on um, uh, let us say when the predator is sneaking up on the prey, the prey who is the fastest will be the one who escapes. Therefore natural selection is for that end anti- for that excuse me, that uh, posterior uh, uh, part of the brain to be very fast. And so naturally, the heartbeat's going to go up very fast as soon as I see the snake, even though I'm not afraid of the snake. But something inside of the mind is. Right. Okay. So see. when I can cool that down and calm him down, when I can use the frontal cortex, uh, our wisdom part, the human part of the brain, can take control only when we remember. Because when we're not thinking about it, actually, literally, we're not thinking, is when we operate off of, of the instinctual method, which is in, in the, uh, the rear of the brain and right. part of the brain stem itself, which means that all the bodily functions and all the movements and all the sensations and all the proprioceptic systems are connected and directly wired right into this posterior reptilian brain. And the frontal cortex actually doesn't have much power over, other than the power that it has over trying to convince this child brain that we have. <laughs> and so that's, that's basically, it's all indirect. Now you could go uh, into it, just I don't want to talk about it too much, we'll talk about it later. There's also the mid-level brain that uh, mammals have that gives rise to our language. Ours is much more developed. Our mammalian brain Mm -hmm. is much more developed than, than the animal brain and because of that, that gives us language. Well dogs have a language. All of their barking and growling and howling and all of that kind of stuff means something to dogs as well as body postures and all kinds of things. So dogs have a huge amount of communication system built in, but it's nothing compared to that of the human. And so here we have this talking machine that comes out of the uh, mammalian part of the brain. Now, Freud has identified these as ego, superego, and id, to where the the posterior part of the brain uh, is the id or the child or the less developed. And then we have all of the rights, rules, and rituals that are stored as concepts and language in the mid part of the brain. Which gives uh, Freud talking about superego, and Byrne calls it the parent ego state. And you can see for yourself that there is a dialogue inside between the parent tells you what to do, the parent is the one that keeps all the rules. Not keeps them, but enforces them you got to do this, you got to do this, this is what you're supposed to do, et cetera, like that. All of our conceptual stuff that tells us things like, you're fat, go on a diet, and then we feel bad. So we have a thought, and then we feel bad. That's exactly the way that it was set up in our society between the parent and the child. The parent tells the child what to do, and the child does it, but he doesn't like it. We do that in, in our own head, and the mechanisms are separate. So the frontal cortex, then, is, should be, but often is not, the boss. This is the adult ego state, or what uh, um, uh, Freud calls an ego. So I think that society, when they talk about he's egotistically, they've got it all backwards. No, he's idotistically, because he's selfish the child is greedy and wants and wants this is that that's where all of that stuff comes from to where the adult himself is sharp can think all we have to do is make sure we continue to do that thinking to wake up to put the connections together to look at what's going on to keep having insight basically that's what we're going to do so um i've got another call coming and he's getting a bit antsy so if you don't okay. mind we'll we'll yeah. finish this one. Sorry,
0: I know I'm taking a lot of time. Thank you very much.
1: All right, well we'll see you later.
0: Yeah I'll see you soon. Okay. Bye
1: Okay, bye bye.